Well, good morning and welcome to the Oaks Church. If you are a first-time guest with us, I want you to know that we are so glad that you're here. If you're a returning guest with us, really thankful that you have decided to worship with us this morning. I want to say just good morning to everyone who's a part of our church family as we continue to work through the book of Romans. We're going to be looking at Romans 8 this morning. So if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we would love to give you one. We have Bibles on our Connect table in the back. As you leave today, pick one of those up. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word or take one for a friend that you might know who would uh, benefit from just spending time in God's Word uh, throughout the week, we love getting God's Word into the hands of people. Now, as we look at Romans 8, I want to set the tone for what we will be talking about this morning. Romans 8 plays this unique role in Scripture, in the Christian life. And it reminds me of uh, what took place in the 1930s. So in 1932, uh, some of you may know that there was this massive construction project that took place in San Francisco. This $35 million bridge building project that we now know as the iconic Golden Gate Bridge. And, And what you need to know is in that time period, One of the most dangerous occupations was bridge building because you would be up on these tall beams and the wind gusts would be unexpected and super quick. Uh, Often you would lose your balance. You're carrying heavy tools. Uh, There's no way to kind of catch your balance or grab on without a moment's notice. And so many people would fall to their death if they were in this bridge building industry. I mean, it's still dangerous today, but at that time, the, the typical statistic was that for every million dollars that went into one of these projects that determined its length and its scope, one person would lose their life. And so going into this project, it was already estimated that at $35 million, there would be 35 construction workers who would lose their life to construct this massive structure. And then the chief engineer for this project came up with an idea. He had seen, you know, uh, the way that trapeze, uh, you know, people in the, in the circus would fall into these giant nets and would kind of just crawl out unscathed. And he said, what would it look like if we rigged up one of these nets under the beams of the bridge as it was being built? Instead of the workers kind of fumbling around in fear or doing their best to, you know, make sure that they were holding on to a beam with one hand and then holding on to a tool with the other, instead of kind of being split in their focused and full of fear, what if they knew that if they fell, if they slipped up, if they made a mistake in a moment of error, that they would just fall into this net that would keep them safe. Well, the chief engineer purchased this net for $130,000. He rigged it up underneath it with the help of the other workers. And the moment that the first worker that was hundreds of feet in the air slipped up and fell, everybody held their breath. And what happened? He fell into this net. And in a mistake that would have typically been fatal, He was able to just crawl out of the net and continue the rest of the work week. There were 19 lives that were saved throughout the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge because of this net that that they had put underneath it. The reason that I'm telling you this is because Romans 8 acts a lot like this net in the Christian life. I think a lot of us perhaps live our Christian life in fear that if we just kind of make one false move, one misstep, could we lose God's love altogether? Yes, God's grace is amazing, 
But just how gracious is God whenever we fail again? Whenever we say that the last time was the last time and it wasn't the last time? What happens whenever we lose our cool and yell at people we love again? Can we, can we lose the grace of God, the love of God with one mistake? What if, what if there is some storm that is unexpected in our life and we find ourselves in the midst of suffering? What will happen? And what Romans 8, specifically these last few verses show us is that we will fall into the love of God. That God's love is able to hold us and keep us even in our failure, even in our mistakes. And for that reason, we could summarize these last verses of Romans 8 in this way. That we can be confident that nothing can separate us from the love of God. You can have a confidence if you are a Christian, that nothing can separate you from the love of God. You can have this confidence. You see, the love of God is a covenant love. I love the way that the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, a Bible that we often read to our kids. It describes God's covenant love as the never stopping, never giving up, unending, always and forever love of God. You see, covenant love is different in comparison to conditional love that we often see in the world or perhaps even show to other people because covenant love is based upon the character of the one who loves and not the worthiness of the one who is loved. And because of what God has done for us through his son, we are loved on the basis of who Christ is and not who we are, what we have done, how we keep our act together. And this changes everything about us. We're going to see four uh, questions in this passage. And it is going to give a confidence, a confidence whenever we face difficulty or unexpected trial, a confidence maybe whenever we know that God is good and yet it, it feels like he is withholding something good from us. We will have a confidence in our relationship with God even whenever there are moments that we commit sin or others accuse us of sin and unrighteousness, we will have a confidence in our relationship with God when we face trials because there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, as Paul will say here. Now, before we read this passage in its entirety, I want you to look just at verse 31 because it's going to act as a way to kind of review us as what we've seen so far and then help us prepare for what we're going to look at this morning. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? Uh, what are the these things that he's talking about? Well, he's talking about everything that has proceeded in the first 30 verses in this chapter. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The Holy Spirit now dwells in you. It is the spirit of adoption. Now you relate to God as Father. What shall we say to all of these things? But I think he's going back even a little bit further. You see, in, in chapters one through five, he talks about our justification, how we were made right with God through Christ. And in chapters six through eight, what I believe he's referencing here is our growth, our sanctification, how God grows us in our relationship with him. In Romans six, he tells us, you are dead to the power of sin because you have been crucified with Christ. And now you are united with Christ to no longer walk under the power of sin. And yet in Romans 7, we, we feel this internal battle that, that he discusses. 
He says, you know, you're no longer under the power of sin, and yet you still struggle with the presence of sin in your life. And so then the question is, well, how can I do this? How can I grow? How can I change? And then in Romans 8, he says, the Holy Spirit is now within you to relate to God as Father. You can't do this in your own strength, and yet now God is working these things out within you. And after reflecting on the truths in Romans 8, he says, so, so what shall we say about these things? How can you have confidence in your relationship with God? And he is going to give us four questions that give us confidence. And we're just going to walk through each of those this morning. Let's look at uh, verses 31 through 39 together. I'll read it. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This passage is so good. The first question that we see here is who could be against us? There are four questions that will give us confidence. The first one is who could be against us? And the answer is nobody. See, the church in Rome needed to hear this in the first century because they would have faced persecution. They would have been ostracized for what they believed. I mean, if people knew you as a Christian during that time period, whenever you went into the market to purchase supplies that you needed for everyday life, there's a good chance that people on the other end of that booth would say, I'm not selling to you. Like you can figure out how to get these things somewhere else, but, but I'm not gonna do business with, with a Christian in a derogatory tone. They would have said something like that. You would have been labeled as a social outcast whenever you said there is one true God, whenever you're walking through the city of Rome and the streets are literally lined with pagan temples. There would have been many who opposed the Christian in Rome. And yet Paul says, but who can be against you if God is for you? you know, we, we feel the same thing today in the world that we live in. There might be those that are against you. And yet we know that because one day every knee will bow before Christ and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, no one can truly stand against us. A couple weeks ago, I was uh, talking to a guy at the place that we have our offices. We're in a co-working space, and it's a guy who I'd had several conversations with. And I said, hey, you know, I would love for you to join me at church on one Sunday. And he goes, oh, okay, uh, well, what do you believe about God? And I could tell by his tone that, you know, I didn't know where this conversation was going. And I said, well, I believe that every person was uh, created in the image of God, created for a relationship with God. And yet, because of our sin, because we've broken God's commands, because of our willful rebellion against God, we're now separated from him. 
And yet God in his love sent his own son to live the life that we should have lived, obeying every single command. And then he died the death to absorb the punishment that our sin deserves. He rose again and now offers life to anyone who trusts in him so that you can have a relationship with God again, so that you can have life in his name. And he looked at me and he said, so, so are you telling me that if I don't believe what you believe, I'm going to go to hell? I said, well, the Bible teaches that you are separated from God in your sin. And unless you trust in what Christ has done in his death and resurrection, then yes, you will spend eternity in hell. And he said, I can't, I can't believe that you would say something like that. And that you would stand here and tell me, even though you don't know me, that I'm going to hell. And I said, what I am telling you is that you don't have to because of the grace of God. And he said, the Bible you believe is garbage. Everything that you believe is garbage. He, he put his finger in my face and he said, you will remember this moment forever. And as he, as he turned and walked away, I, I just began to pray for him. My heart broke for him. And I said, God, give me another chance. Lord, would you begin stirring in his heart? Lord, would you make him discontent with his worldview that somehow he would not spend eternity in hell, but that he would surrender to you? We face opposition. Christian, don't be surprised whenever your biblical conviction about views of heterosexual marriage and biological gender are unpopular. And people, people say, how could, you, how could you believe like that? You, you will face opposition. Whenever you've been dating someone for a long time and you, and you begin thinking about marriage and people hear that you've abstained from any physical intimacy and that you've, you haven't had sex yet. And they think, that's crazy. Like, how, how could you do that? that? That's not what the world says is normal. Why are you doing that? And yet you say, this, this is what brings God glory. Uh, whenever, whenever people think, like, what are you doing with your hour on a Sunday morning sitting in a rec center hearing someone talk about God, whenever you could be at brunch right now, and yet you'd say, this is one of the greatest things that I could do. I'm hearing the word of life, worshiping with the people of God. When people think you're, you're simple-minded for believing that there is a God who rules over the whole universe, who created all things, you, you will face opposition, Christian, and yet hold fast, because if God is for us, who can be against us? This reminded me this week of the story of David that we read about in 1 Samuel 17, whenever he is just a little shepherd boy and he comes toe to toe with Goliath, a nine foot nine giant. Uh, Goliath begins to taunt him and say, says, who do you think I am, a dog that you would come at me with sticks? He's calling David a, a stick. And then David replies and he says, you might come at me with sword and javelin and spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. How, how is he able to do that? Because he realized that the God that was with him and for him was greater than the opposition in front of him. Christian, what Paul is doing here is he's not, he's not making light of, of the criticism that you might face. He's not, he's not making light of the fact that you are often reminded that this world is not your home. He's making more of the God that you serve the God who is with you, the God that is for you, that because God is for you, no one can be against you. And because this is true, you can be courageous. It's my charge for you, Christian. Be 
courageous because God is for you. You cannot fail. What does it look like for you to take the next step to make God's name known? What are you hesitant to do right now or afraid of? That if you had the same kind of confidence that Paul talks about here, that God is for you, that you would take the next step in pursuing. For some of you, it might be publicly declaring your faith in baptism, saying, I want the whole world to know that God is for me because he has sent his son to die for me. For others of you, it, it might be that as, as a coworker, is just talking about the difficult things that are going on in their life. You say, hey, I know I've never done this before, but, but would it be okay if I just prayed for you right now? Prayed for them in, in the break room or in the parking lot whenever you're, sit, whenever you're standing there talking at the end of the workday? For some of you, it might look like fighting hard for your marriage when all of your friends have said, no, give up, it's over. St- stop, stop investing in this relationship. You say, you know what, this is who God is. You know, this is who I'm married to. I'm gonna fight for this marriage. For others of you, the step of courage might be making the first step to mend a broken relationship with a family member or friend. For others of you, it, it, it might be, you know what, I've kind of been silent on the Christian convictions that I have when it comes to cultural issues. And you know, whenever, whenever these things come up around friends, I just wanna, not, not in a combative way, but I wanna clearly articulate what I believe and why I believe these things. If God is for us, we can't fail. For some of you, it might look like saying, you know what, I believe God has called me to a career ministry to where I might move to another place where nobody speaks the language that I speak because that's what it looks like to make a move of courage knowing that God is for you so no one can be against you. And yet Paul anticipates that we might wonder how we can be so certain that God is for us. Because sometimes whenever life is hard, it doesn't feel like God is for us. With our finite perspective and with our limited understanding, we can experience difficulty in our life and say, well, is God really for us? And in the next question he presents, he is going to prove to you that God is for you, not by looking at your current circumstances, but by pointing you to the cross and what God gave to make you his own. Question two, what would he withhold? What would God withhold from you? Nothing. See, in verse 32, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's using a literary technique here that is called from greater to lesser. He's saying, what is the greatest need that any human has? It is to have a relationship with God. You as a creature were created to know your creator. You're completely dependent upon him. The greatest need that you have is to know God. What is your greatest problem? That sin entered in and separated you, severed you from this relationship that you were supposed to have with God. What has God done about it? At great cost, at great expense to himself, gave his own son so that you could be in relationship with God again as you're intended. And so here's Paul's logic as follows. If God has seen your greatest need and then solved your greatest problem at the greatest cost to himself, what else would he withhold? And the answer is nothing. He will not withhold anything that you need. Think about it like this for a moment. Let's see if, if I you know, planned a, a family vacation to Disney World, 
All right, so I wanted to take, you know, it's me, Abby, our two boys, and we're like, hey, we're going to go on a road trip. This is just going to be, you know, the most memorable vacation that we've had. And so, you know, I mean, a vacation like that, you're, you're planning on just spending like two months' salary because it's, you know, Airbnb for the whole week or whatever. You're paying for gas at like $5 a gallon to get down there. You're buying the Disney tickets, not just the tickets that get you into the park, but the ones that get you in the front of the line everywhere you go. And you're just like, all right, we're, we're all in. We're doing this. And then you, you drive down there and you, and you get to the park. And, and what if as we were pulling into the park, there's a sign that says, Disney World parking, $50. And I just sigh and throw my hands up and I'm like, nope. Like this is where I draw the line, 50 bucks. <laughs> like I'm not, guys, this is too much. We're, we're turning, turning this truck around. We're headed back to Cincinnati. That would be unthinkable, right? Because, because I've already invested so much. I've, I've, it's already cost me so much and I was glad to do it. I joyfully swiped the card in every other circumstance. It would be easy to, to give that gift of, of parking so that our family could, could enjoy the rest of our time there. And what, what Paul is saying is, look, Look at all that God has done for you through Christ. Is there anything else that you would need that he would withhold? If God has given you everything you need for life, God will give you everything you need to live. If God has given you everything that you need for life, for eternal life through the Son, God will give you everything you need to live. This verse also shows us that our relationship with God came at a great price. It says that he did not spare his own son. This is a quick callback to the Old Testament. In Genesis 22, whenever God called Abraham to sacrifice his own son, Isaac, and in the moment when he has his knife lifted, ready to bring it down upon him, God says, wait, stop, don't do it. I've seen that you did not spare your own son. And in that moment, Abraham hears a ram crying, stuck in a thicket, and God says, sacrifice that ram instead. And what he is doing He is setting us up to see that God sends a substitute to give us life when we deserved death. And here he says, I told Abraham he didn't have to spare his own son, even though he showed me that he would. And now I am showing you that I sent my own son, and I did not spare my own son for you. What else would he not give? We see another prophecy here fulfilled from Genesis 12, where God told Abraham that through you, through your line, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And what does verse 32 say? That he gave his son up for us all. What he is saying here is that the church of Rome was made up of Jews, those who knew the covenant promises of God, those who were familiar with all that God commanded Israel, was also made up of Gentiles. Those who, who were previously worshiping pagan idols, completely unfamiliar with who God was until they first heard the gospel. The, that the son was given up for us all. For those who were poor, the down and outs, and those who were well-known and affluent, the up and outs. For those who were young, those who were old, this means that God did not spare his own son for you because he gave him up for us all, that we would have life in his name. So he says, well, then how would he not graciously give us all things? So as we feel as if we don't have all that we need, 
Jesus invites us to go to God in prayer, to be reminded of who he is. We, we pray, uh, praying that our, our prayers would be aligned to the will of God and trusting that when they're not, God still satisfies us, knowing that he knows what we need better than we do. When Jesus talks about the way that we should approach God, he gives this example in Matthew 7. He says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Nobody would do that. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then who are evil, saying, saying you who are not like God, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God will give you all that you need. And if God has given us all that we need, then we can be generous with everything that we have. Uh, the response here is generosity, that we are generous because God has given us everything that we need. If God has given us everything that we need, then we can be generous with everything that we have. If, if you think that you know, God, God's kind of withholding everything that I need, then, then you're going to be stingy. You're going to be selfish. You're not going to be quick to, to see the needs of others and to provide for others. But whenever you realize God has given me everything that I need, you're going to be quick to be generous to others. And we often say at the Oaks that generosity is much more about what is in your heart than what is in your hands. And we seek to be generous with our time, our treasures, our talents. What does it look like for us to be generous as a church? It's, it's a great blessing that we get to support missionaries throughout the world, that we support four church plants right now through the, through the way that you sacrificially give. That this week, the Madisonville Education and Assistance Center sent me an email asking if we could help with some of the meals that they will be giving out at Thanksgiving because our church is known in this community as a church that cares about the physical needs that people have. What does it look like for you yeah, as, as an individual to be generous because God has given you everything that you need? What does it look like for you to maybe see a unique need in someone's life and, and say, I can meet that? It can be something as simple as offering a ride for someone that needs one or, or as huge as providing the car that they need to be able to transport themselves. What unique gift has God given you that would be a blessing to others? How can we joyfully give because God has so richly given to us? You see, God has given us everything that we need and yet so often we wrestle with shame or guilt because we, we experience the blessings of God and we're like, I, I don't deserve this. We know the sin that is still at work within our hearts. We know that our, our shortcomings are daily and that we often fail. And we think, man, there, there's no way that I could experience this kind of goodness. We often condemn ourselves. We feel condemned. Why is that the case? Well, question three is a comfort here. Who could bring any charge? Who could bring any charge? Who could heap condemnation upon you? Paul says, nobody. Look at verse 33. It says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Verse 32 focuses on the way that God has sent his son to die for us. And verse 33 and 34 shows that Christ walked out of the tomb and now lives for us. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf so that if there is any charge of sin against us, God the Father 
and God the Son say he or she is completely justified. They are made right based upon the work that I have done on their behalf. And for that reason, no one can bring any charge against us. And if that is the case, then why do we often still feel condemned? Well, it's because we often condemn ourselves. We often forget that we are justified. First John 3.20 says this, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. This is the kind of discouragement you feel, the kind of condemnation that you feel. Whenever in a moment of weakness you get angry and you yell at your kids and you know that you've gone far past the disciplinary instruction and you're just mad. That moment, whenever, whenever you're just, you can't believe that you lingered on that impure thought or that image for too long. You're just like, what am I thinking? That moment that you share that, that piece of gossip that you know no one else should know, that somebody told you in confidence and yet you share it just to make the conversation a little more interesting. And then you come in here on a Sunday morning and you think, man, how can I sing songs of praise in a, in a moment like this, whenever these same lips have, have shared things that have harmed another person? <laughs> like surely God doesn't want to draw near to me. Maybe you're thinking, how could, I, how could I meditate on God's word in my devotional time? How could I even crack open my Bible whenever, and I know that, that my my thought life this week hasn't always honored God. And in that moment of neediness, whenever you feel like perhaps God wants nothing to do with you is whenever you need to be reminded that Jesus came to seek and to save sinners. And that because Christ died upon your behalf, you are no longer condemned. You cannot bring any charge against yourself, but in fact, you can draw near to God with full confidence because of what Christ has done. So often we condemn ourselves and yet none of those charges stick. But we're also accused by a professional. Revelation 12.10 calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. With his forked tongue, he loves to hurl lies at us. He loves to spend his time dredging up all of those sins that God said were somewhere on the ocean floor just to throw them back in your face and say, remember when? But like, like you, you, do, you do know that other people know about like that, don't you? Or look around the room. No one struggles with this like you do. Like you're completely alone in this. This room is full of perfect people. Are you, are you just putting on a show hoping that no one will know? He hurls these lies at us. And in that moment, Christ shows his nail-scarred hands and says, look, it is finished. Those accusations are done away with. There is no condemnation. Who can bring any charge against God's elect because Christ himself has taken every sin and nailed it to the cross that it would speak against you no more. And so that Christ interceding on your behalf would say, you're, you're a child of the Father. I'm your elder brother and I stand here on your behalf. You see, that is something that Christ has, has always done for his people. There's this beautiful story in the Old Testament, and I'm, I'm using a lot of Old Testament references this morning because I think often we think like, oh, well, you know, God was different in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. And what I want you to see is the consistency of God's love all the way from Genesis to Revelation. There's this, this beautiful story that now we find in Zechariah 3, where Zechariah gets this vision of Joshua the high priest, verses 1 through 10. 
and he sees the high priest in this vision, and he's clothed with these dirty, filthy garments, as it says. And there are two figures standing next to him. One is Satan, and he is accusing Joshua, the high priest, saying, this is what you've done. This is how bad you are. This is why your clothes are so filthy. This is a spiritual representation of how unworthy you are to be in the presence of God. And in that moment, Christ Jesus says this, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity, your sins from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Even in the Old Testament prophecies, we see Jesus, the Son of God, silencing the lies of the accuser and his accusations, that they will not stand because he has said, I have put clean robes of righteousness on you. I've clothed you with my righteousness that you would be confident as you stand in my presence and you are welcomed in my kingdom. It reminds me of the verse in Before the Throne, this famous hymn that says this, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Because God has shown us this undeserved grace, we are a humble people. We are justified, not by the works of our own hands, but completely based upon the work of Christ in our place. What does it look like to approach God in humility, to be humble toward God and humble toward others? Here are a few ways that I think you could possibly measure that. One is gratitude. Are you grateful for this grace that you have received? Or do you think that somehow you did it, you earned it, and that's why your condemnation doesn't stick? Are you, are you constantly praising God for what he has done for you? Not only giving you salvation, but everything you don't deserve. Another, and this is similar to it, are you entitled or are you content? I think often we think, well, I, I deserve better than this. Like, look at the way that things are. I deserve more. And in reality, we were dead in our sin and headed on a path that led toward hell whenever God saved us. That should produce contentment and joy, not entitlement. We also begin to exchange this facade of pretending and perfection for an authentic vulnerability that we don't have to pretend whenever we're around people, that we can actually open up about what we're struggling with and what we're going through. You see, all of your dirty laundry was aired from Golgotha's hill. Whenever we see the fact that our sin was so bad that the Son of God had to come and die for it, there's no sin that you could say to someone that would surprise them. The Son of God had to die for the sin that is in my heart and the sins that I've committed with my own hands. There's nothing that I could say that would surprise you. And at the same time, we can, we can share these things with confidence, knowing that they are completely nailed to the cross and stand against us no more. This makes us really gracious toward other people as they're growing, as they, as they mess up, as they even sin against us. Humility is the first to forgive and quick to receive forgiveness. And finally, we, re we regularly run to the throne of grace. 1 John 2, 1, John says, I'm, I'm writing these things to you so that you wouldn't sin, but, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
That's a, that's a good theological truth. And, and sometimes we're like, well, how does that actually play out? And I think one of the, one of the best stories, me and Matt, we were reading this uh, this past Monday in John 8, whenever, whenever there's the woman who's caught in adultery and she's dragged before those in the city and they're picking up stones to stone her and Christ stands in between her, the accused and the accusers and says, he who's without sin can throw the first stone. And he was able to tell her to go and sin no more because he knew that he would soon bear her sin upon his own shoulders and die for it on the cross. And when you receive that kind of grace and mercy, you don't say, okay, great. Like I, can, I just have a free pass to sin more. No, you say, Lord, help me to go and sin no more. And that leads us to our fourth and final question. Who or what could separate us from God's love? And the answer is nobody and nothing. Who could separate us? What could separate us from God's love? Nobody and nothing. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Here, Paul slows down so that he can focus on the love of God, the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then he lists some of the most desperate situations that you could ever find yourself in. He says, what about tribulation? What about whenever you're going through trial? You're distressed, you're facing persecution. What about whenever you're facing deep, intense pain and suffering? As long as we live in a broken world that is marred by sin, we will face suffering. I think often one of the most confusing aspects of the Christian life is that life is still often hard. And, and what this verse says is that nothing can separate you from the love of God. But it doesn't say that the love of God will separate you from experiencing these things. It says even when you experience these things, you will not be separated from the love of God. This verse is almost prophetic, knowing that in the coming years, the church of Rome would face horrific persecution under the hand of the emperor Nero, who murdered Christians, often burning them. Paul says, even then, you'll not be separated from the love of God, but your faith will become sight. He moves on. He's saying, what about famine or nakedness? He says, what if, what if you are deprived of the most bare essentials of life? You don't have food? You don't have clothing? What about then? You won't be separated from the love of God, but God will continue to sustain you. What about danger or sword? That God will continue to love you even still, and you will experience the love of God in ways perhaps you never fathomed before. Then he moves on to Psalm 44, quoting these words, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Why does he bring these words to mind here? Because in Psalm 44, the people of God were crying out. They're saying, God, we've, we've been faithful to you. We've obeyed your commands. Lord, we know that you are faithful and good, and yet we are still facing difficulty and persecution. They were crying out 
for redemption. And what we know as we stand on this side of the cross looking back is that God gave them a greater redemption than they could have ever imagined. That God gave his people a redemption that would not just be one who is victorious over a physical battle, but that God sent his son to wage a spiritual war against sin, Satan, and death so that all who would believe in him would not just have a life that is sustained for 80 years, but would have eternal life in his name. That's the reason that Paul can say here that we are more than conquerors. What does that mean? Like, what is more than being victorious in a battle? Isn't that kind of like the highest rung of success whenever it comes to facing difficulty to be the one who is a victor? And yet he says, no, in all these things, in all of the difficulty, in all of the suffering, we are more than conquerors. How is that possible? It's as if he is echoing the truth from Romans 8:28 again. That because God is able to work those things in your life that are perhaps one of, one, some of the most difficult things that you will go through for your good and his glory, you emerge as more than a conqueror. I like the way that the New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner puts it. He says, afflictions become the means by which believers are more than conquerors so that the things that oppose believers are actually turned to their benefit. That's why Paul can be so confident here whenever he says in verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is sure, he is certain, he is confident that nothing and no one will separate us from the love of God. Because if God has pursued you and saved you, if the blood of Christ has been spilled to wash away your sins and the Holy Spirit has now taken up residence within you, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. God will not deny himself and you are united with Christ and indwelled with his spirit. This gives you great assurance. Whenever you sin, whenever you face difficult circumstances, that if you have trusted in Christ, that he holds you fast. This is often called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We hear Jesus say something like this in John 10, 28. I give them eternal life, talking about those who follow him, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. And because God has loved us in this way, we can love others. What does it look like to love others, to be consistent, to be sacrificial, to love others as God has loved us. I don't want to spend a lot of time on application here because I think we often know what we should do, how we should go about loving others. It's often the application that we struggle the most with. Why is that the case? Because I, th I think we forget the love of God for us. See, 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. How are we loving to others? Because our hearts are consumed with the fact that God has first loved us. Let me remind you of the love of God. We, we live in a world where we so often have to earn the love of others. Oh, we think we have to achieve certain career goals to be lovable. We have to be a, a certain weight or look a certain way to be deemed lovable by others. We have to meet standards of another person's approval. Uh, we have to make ourselves worthy of someone else's love. And yet the gospel says that whenever God 
knew just how unlovable you are, knowing all your faults and failures, knowing that even in your salvation you would be saved to sin again, he pursued you, gave his son for you, and showed his own love for you. There's no greater love than this. So what if you fail? What if you fall? What if you stumble? God's love is a covenant love that holds you fast. For the sake of time, we won't go into it, but look to the prophet Hosea, who, who God said, I want to give an earthly picture of my love, my unconditional covenant love, to the point that he would have a prophet go and marry a prostitute who would be unfaithful again and again. And he says, Hosea, continue to pursue her, that the world would know the kind of love with which I have pursued my people. He is faithful when we are not, and his love cannot be comprehended, and yet he makes it known to us still. Paul's prayer to the church in Ephesus is that they would comprehend the love of God. In verse 18, he prays these things, that, that they would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may would may be filled with all the fullness of God. How can you be confident of this three-dimensional love of God? We see right there in verse 39, the very last words, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where does our confidence come from? Our confidence comes from Christ. That God's love was made known to us through the cross. To see a picture of God's love, don't look at your circumstances. Look at all that God has done for you, taking care of your greatest need and solving your greatest problem at the greatest expense, which is sending his only son. And for that reason, you can be confident that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. So now what? Here are four exhortations based upon these four questions. This is your response to these four questions. That God is for you, so attempt courageous acts of obedience. For some of you who perhaps don't have a relationship with God would say, you know what? Right now, the act of obedience for me is simply saying to God, I admit that I am a sinner. and I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that he has done everything for life to have a relationship with God. And in this moment, I am trusting in him and no longer trusting in myself. For others of you, that courageous act of obedience could be sharing the gospel with a family member, maybe sharing your testimony with one of your parents over Thanksgiving dinner in, in November. Maybe it's saying, you know what, I've, I've never served on a team and yet I wanna give my time to do that. I don't know what it looks like for you. What does it look like to take a courageous act of obedience? Two, God will give you everything you need, so be generous with everything you have. What if you just ask God right now, Lord, would you reveal a need to me that I could, Maybe, maybe there's just something that you do every single week and you say, you know what, I know that at the end of every year we, we take up an offering to bless missionaries that we support and we do things in our city and God, I, I wanna learn what it means to trust you with what you've given me. Third, God has silenced your accusers so relate to him and others with humble confidence. You don't have to approach God with timidity you can approach God with confidence, knowing that Christ has removed your sin. You can ask him for what you need, that you can 
you can be humble toward others and no longer hide because God has completely dealt with your sin. Fourth and finally, God will never stop loving you, so love others like he does. Because God will never stop loving you if you are in Christ, you can actually love others like he does. Because all the acceptance and approval that you need has already been given to you in Christ. We can be confident there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Let's pray.